Revelation chapter 19, this is the word of the Lord. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the king of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is a word of the Lord. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Uh, God, we thank you for this word. And, uh, you know, the imagery is so vivid that uh, if we really did picture it in our minds uh, as we heard it being read aloud, um, you know, I think it's something that is really sealed uh, into our imaginations. And uh, I guess that's what we want. We want in this time that you would seal um, your words, uh, the true words, uh, your visions and images um, uh, into our minds, it would be sealed into our hearts, uh, that we would hold um, firmly to, um, you know, the promises that you give us, and also uh, the things that you reveal to us, uh, that we might uh, have the right orientation in the ways that we live in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, everybody. So <clears throat> we have been going through the book of Revelation and, and we've been doing it since actually January, since the beginning of the year. We're getting closer and closer and closer to the end. And, you know, I, I guess is that most people probably weren't familiar with the, the chunk that we just went through from chapter 16 all the way through 18, because the truth of the matter is preachers uh, don't really preach on those sections. Uh, they usually focus on the beginning and then they'll usually focus on the end. So uh, I'm guessing you're probably familiar with maybe the beginning end and end if you're familiar with it at all. Uh, but, you know, having now gone through this uh, middle section for a while now, uh, I do think it, it will make the end of Revelation that much sweeter. One of my all-time favorite miniseries is the miniseries Band of Brothers. And uh, this miniseries, it follows Easy Company, which is a paratrooper infantry unit, and it follows their experiences through World War II. And as you watch this series and you follow the lives of these people, you follow them through their, the battles that they experience and the surprise attacks and the death of you know, their, uh, their friends uh, and even the politics that happen in the military. Uh, you get to that final episode after having gone through all of those hard things and it's announced that the Germans have surrendered and now the, the members of this military unit who have literally been, well, not literally, but who have been through hell on earth, they get to finally go home. And you, you feel really good because you've been with them on this grueling journey and you feel their elation because you know what they've been through as a member of the audience. But if you don't watch all of the, I think it's 10 episodes. So if you don't watch like the nine episodes and you skip to the last episode, you don't really get a full sense of why the celebration is so great at the end, right? It, it, it's the same, I think, with the book of Revelation. If you just know the end of the story, like the good part, without going through, you know, the mud, without going through all the judgment, without going through all the spiritual warfare and battles, you don't really get a sense of why the end is so good. Well, we are approaching this final episode and having been through a section that talks a lot about the battle between God and Satan and the uh, resulting outpouring of the wrath of God, it is going to start to feel very sweet. In this passage, John hears a multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah. And even as I read it, I'm sure you recognize uh, you know, a word that's used very frequently in this passage is the word hallelujah. Right? The multitudes cry out, hallelujah. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures join and say, hallelujah. And in the multitude, they cry out again, hallelujah. And this chapter is full of a, full of a chorus of hallelujahs. And, you know, if, if we were meeting uh, together in person, like imagine if we were all in a room together, uh, what I would do is I would ask you all to, to shout hallelujah as loud as you could, just to get a sense of what, what John is hearing. Uh, but you know what? Uh, I'm sure nobody would want to do it. And so you would probably give a polite and a, a little muted uh, hallelujah, right? And then I would be disappointed and think, well, that illustration didn't work. So good thing we are on Zoom and, and we can all be spared of that awkward moment, but just use your imaginations and think, what would it be like to hear this loud hallelujah, this loud multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah? See, what we have here is uh, the multitude in heaven praising God with great joy, with great fervency, which is what that word hallelujah is meant to communicate. And what sparks this great response of praise? It is the fall of Babylon, and it is the judgment upon the great prostitute. Uh, we, we took a detour from the book of Revelation last week because uh, I wanted to reflect on a year of, you know, meeting virtually. 
And that threw off the schedule a little bit. So uh, to put us back on track, uh, I'm going to skip chapter 17 and 18. Uh, but, you know, in chapter 17, we are introduced to this character, to the prostitute. And the prostitute represents the worldly city. The worldly city is like a counterfeit church community in that her worship is not directed to God, but it is directed towards false idols. And adultery is a common imagery uh, in the Old Testament for idolatry. So the prophetic imagery in places like Hosea and Ezekiel would be good examples of that. And this worldly city has been devoted to things like power and to things like pleasure and to things like money. And as a result, their deeds are called abominable. In the vision, the prostitute is likened to the city of Babylon. And in the Old Testament, Babylon was the kingdom that destroyed Israel's temple and sent them into exile. And you get a sense of how traumatic that was for the people of God in places like Psalm 137, because they are weeping. They're recalling how their captors mocked them. They are struggling to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land. And all they want is justice. And so that psalm ends with a very disturbing line, blessed shall he be. Uh, he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. And you kind of think to yourself, how can God's people want something that is so gruesome and so violent? Well, it's because that's what the Babylonians did to their little ones and they want justice. So this is what the prostitute and the beast represent in the book of Revelation. And for the original audience, this prostitute represents Rome because at the time it was the Roman empire that was persecuting Christian believers. But all empires and state institutions that persecute the people of God would be identified with this prostitute because the driving force behind these worldly empires is ultimately this spiritual enemy. Now, we've also been saying that the message of Revelation is pretty simple. The details can be hard, but the overarching message is Jesus wins. And there is a lot of fighting and a lot of violence in Revelation because it's trying to convey the intensity of the cosmic battle between God and the devil. And most of the language is being used figuratively, but as I have tried to make clear, the underlying message is true and still connected to our life experience. You know, I can say that my car is an old tin can, and you wouldn't think my car looks like an actual right tin can because you're not interpreting those words literally. I'm using figurative language to say my car is old and tired. And even though the language is figurative, it's referencing something that is true and real. So similarly, even though we've been seeing right figurative uh, language uh, of fire, of the wine press, of plagues, and all these other kinds of images, uh, it doesn't mean that it isn't true or connected to our reality. They're all pointing to the judgment of God who is full of wrath on account of sin and idolatry. And, you know, some of the pictures can be frightening and as frightening as the pictures might seem, uh, it may actually fall short of conveying how frightening the wrath of God, the judgment of God ought to be. And so there is a, a kind of a soberness that we need about some of these spiritual realities. Now, in this cosmic battle, Satan has been thrown down out of heaven, and therefore he is incredibly angry, and he's attacking the church with great fervency because he knows his time is short. And we learn that from Revelation 13. Uh, now, after Satan has done his best to attack, his, attack the church, he will meet his final end. He will meet his final defeat with the return of Christ, where he will come face to face with his final judgment. And that is why the multitude is praising God in this first stanza. They are saying, 
Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Why? For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. They're celebrating because God is about to bring evil to justice by defeating the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth. Remember uh, the cry of the martyrs, and this is actually a cry that you oftentimes see in the Psalms as well. The cry of the martyrs is, how long, O Lord, right? How long? Uh, there's a period of waiting for justice, uh, but there is a time where that waiting period will be over. And everything that we long for and everything that we hope for will come to its final conclusion. And that is when the cries of how long, O Lord, will then turn into hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. And anyone who is on the receiving end of injustice is always going to be crying that, right? How long? How long do we have to endure this? How long will my attackers seemingly get away with what they've done? Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, very famous, a poor Mississippi sharecropper who was beaten in a Mississippi jailhouse. She famous, famously says, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired, right? It, it's a powerful statement because it encapsulates anybody who has been on the receiving end of injustice for so long and how, how they would feel. And the cry of how long, O Lord, it is the cry of the persecuted martyrs in the book of Revelation. Those cries will eventually end because the prostitute will be judged and the city of Babylon will fall. That's what chapters uh, 17 and 18 were about. Those cries for justice will turn into cries of hallelujah at the defeat of evil and at the victory of the lamb. And anybody who longs for justice and anybody who's saying, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired, guess what? Will not be tired forever. Because when the rider on that white horse comes, the one who is called faithful and true and comes to throw the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, it will be an occasion to celebrate because it will be the final defeat of all evil. And when that happens, we will celebrate with a party. We will celebrate with a great feast uh, in the marriage supper of the Lamb. The prostitute has uh, been a major character in the previous two chapters, but now the bride emerges. The bride stands in direct contrast to the prostitute. Whereas the prostitute was clothed, this is imagery from the chapters we skipped, but the prostitute was clothed in, clothed in purple and scarlet. The bride here is clothed in bright, fine linen. Whereas the prostitute did abominable deeds, the bride here is adorned with the righteous deeds of the saints. The bride represents the community of the saints or the church, and she is ready for her wedding where she will eventually become called the wife of the lamb in Revelation chapter 21. This bride wears fine linen, bright and pure. Uh, the garments that cover her, it, it reminds us of the garments that are adorned by the saints, a common image that repeats over and over again, right? For example, in the letter to the church in Sardis, Jesus promises that those who conquer will be clothed in white garments. Uh, prophets Isaiah and Ezekiel, they also use a language of God clothing his bride or his wife with garments of salvation. Throughout the book of Revelation, the saints are clothed with white robes. 
Now, it's not that fashion is important to God, but through this, something is being communicated. And that theme goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Nakedness conveys the, the shame of our sin. And that starts all the way in the Garden of Eden. But God is always the one who provides the clothing to cover our nakedness. He did it as early in Genesis chapter 3 when he did it for Adam and Eve. He provided garments of skins and he clothed them. And so God would be the one who would provide the bride with clothing so that she can clothe herself with it. And she adorns herself in fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints, in contrast again to the abominable deeds of the prostitute. And what are the righteous deeds? Well, in the context of Revelation, these righteous deeds, I think, are the work of being a faithful witness, which means resisting the temptation to compromise our worship and directing our worship to God over counterfeit idols. Now, worship, you could say from one perspective, is what the book of Revelation is ultimately about. The reason for all God's judgment is because the devil is deceiving people from giving God the worship that he is due. Rather, um, they're worshiping the wealth of Babylon or the power of Babylon or the pleasures of Babylon rather than worshiping the one who sits upon the throne. And it is, of course, never appropriate to worship something other than God, including the one who is bringing the true words of God. Uh, there, there's that interesting part in, in this passage where uh, John, he fell down and he worshiped the angel who gave the true words of God. And the angel says, no, 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 you must not do that, right? I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Uh, and it's so interesting. And John even fell into that in worshiping this angel. And the angel has to correct him and say, no, no, no. That's not where your worship ought to go. Because it is so easy to direct our worship elsewhere, even towards one who brings the true words of God. But that itself also lends itself towards idolatry. You know, uh, I wonder with all the, you know, Christian leaders who have fallen, like in the past year, uh, all these like Christian celebrity figures, I wonder if what we're seeing is uh, one of the idolatries in the church being exposed because you have these incredibly gifted teachers and preachers who are bringing the word of God. And sometimes it is easier to put our faith in the servants of God over God himself. But as this angel reminds John, don't even worship an angel that is bringing the true words of God, but direct your worship to God himself. Uh, I think an interesting sidebar that has uh, applications uh, for the Western church. So. With the introduction of the bride comes the anticipation of this marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, this is one of the passages I like to preach on for weddings. And uh, uh, for those of you, if I officiated your wedding, um, maybe I preached on this passage for your wedding, right? I, I, I like this passage for wedding sermons because one of the things that it highlights is the importance of the meal, <laughs> right? Eating together. And uh, meals, I think, are very important because they're a place of fellowship and they're a place of intimacy. They, they have the power to bring people together. They have the power to build relationship. Uh, I remember reading an article a long time ago in The Atlantic, and it was basically analyzing the importance of the habit of eating together. And the author was mentioning how the, the dinner table, it can act as a unifier and as a place of community. And... Uh, uh, don't we need that today? Of course we do. So the meal communicates this, this kind of hospitality and welcome. So what I usually like to encourage uh, the man and woman who are getting married to do is 
not only remember how important meals were in the formation of that union, right? All the dates and all the times of eating together in terms of building that relationship. Um, but I also want to encourage them to continue that habit and continue to practice, continue to go out on dates, continue to share meals together and conversation together and share fellowship together and build intimacy together. Uh, you know, it's no wonder that Jesus also uses a meal to demonstrate fellowship and intimacy with him. If you remember in the letter to the church in Laodicea, one of the things Jesus says is anyone hears my voice and opens a door, I will come uh, in to eat with him and he with me. Right? He is offering, he's extending the hand of fellowship and relationship and intimacy when he offers to eat with us. So right now, we are kind of in this engagement period. We have been given the engagement ring, which, by the way, in the Greek, it actually happens to be the same word as a down payment, right? And in the Bible, the down payment is associated with the Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a guarantee of the fullness of the union that is to come when the marriage is consummated at the return of Jesus Christ. And with the defeat of the prostitute and the fall of Babylon, the invitations have gone out. And so now the angel says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Now here, uh, it got a little bit confusing to me because uh, the picture changes or the metaphor changes a little bit. So uh, I'm reading this and I say, we're the bride. Okay, I thought we were the bride. But then there are these invitations that are being extended uh, kind of like, wait, are these invitations being extended to believers who are also the bride, right? So uh, the, the picture and the mixing of metaphors confuse me a little bit. So the commentaries, uh, basically uh, what they're saying is this, you know, the bride represents the corporate community of the redeemed, but then the picture shifts a little bit and now it emphasizes the believer as an individual who is invited to the marriage supper. And the individual is called upon to respond to the invitation in order to partake in this great wedding supper of the Lamb. And that invitation, it reminds me of a parable that you find. Uh, there's Matthew's version in Matthew 22 of the, the wedding feast. Or there's a Luke's version in Luke chapter 14 of the great banquet. Now in Luke 14, uh, Jesus tells a parable. And he tells a parable of a man who once gave a great banquet and invited many. But those who were invited, they had all these different excuses for not attending. One person says, I can't go. I, I bought a field. Another person says, well, I can't go. I bought some oxen. Another person says, I have a wife. And so I can't come. So the master of the house tells the servant to go out into the streets and bring in the poor, bring in the crippled, bring in the blind, bring in the lame until this banquet room is full. And Jesus tells this parable to make the point that even though many will be invited to dine with him in the kingdom of God, not everyone will accept the invitation. There will be some who think they have something better to do other than to dine with Jesus in the final banquet, and they will make excuses to not attend. In Luke 14, there is this benediction, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And likewise, you have a benediction here, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, during this engagement period, the invitations have gone out. And during this period, there is still an opportunity to respond to that invitation. But just as in the parable, that window will close one day and the marriage will be consummated 
and you might miss the wedding. Uh, those who make excuses and turn down uh, and, uh, this invitation will not ultimately be able to participate in this great feast. Instead, they will be part of another kind of meal. Now the tone's gonna shift a little bit here, okay? Uh, in verse 19, there is an angel who calls all the birds to come gather for the great supper of God. But you know what happens in this supper? In this supper, uh, these birds, they are called to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh uh, of, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And many commentators see that this meal is an obvious parody of the marriage supper. And it's a, it's a really gruesome picture, which is consistent with a lot of the other kinds of imagery related to the final judgment. While the saints will partake in a great banquet because they have responded to the invitation to come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, those who turn down God's invitation will be feasted upon by the birds themselves. Right? Again, this is figurative language. And it actually comes from Ezekiel 39, where God proclaims judgment against Gog. Um, but uh, it's communicating that those who reject the invitation will not be part of this great meal, but they will be the meals themselves. Uh, it's not the difference between eating at a fancy restaurant and eating at a fast food restaurant. The difference is much greater than that. It's the difference between eating at a fancy restaurant uh, and being eaten alive by animals in the middle of the desert, right? That's how extreme the, the picture is. Now, the book of Revelation, what it makes me uh, think of is, it makes me think of something Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you can only serve one master. And there is a very clear line that is being drawn in the book of Revelation. And that line is between God and between Satan. Uh, it's between Babylon and Jerusalem. It's between the prostitute and the bride. You see, it's it's a very clear line. And I'm, I'm someone who tends to appreciate nuance and, you know, the gray spaces. But uh, the book of Revelation is a reminder to me that there are some things where the line that is drawn in the sand is very clear. Worship is one of those things, right? Uh, you either worship God or you don't. And therefore you are unfaithful. You are in idolatry. Now it's really interesting. Adultery is used as an illustration for idolatry in the Old Testament. And I would say there's a clear line. If you're a married person, right, you are either faithful to your spouse or you're not. And maybe some people will try to argue technicalities like, oh, you know, nothing um, happened or we were just doing sending text messages or whatever it is that people say. But guess what? At the end of the day, you weren't being faithful to your spouse, right? Uh, so there is, and sometimes I feel like that's what we do in terms of how we view our worship to God. It's like, well, I didn't go to a temple and bow down before a statue. But there are other ways in which we are not faithful to God in our worship. And the book of Revelation makes it very clear. There is a very clear line. Either you worship God or you don't, or you're an idolater. There is only faithful and unfaithful when it comes to marriage, right? Likewise, there's only faithful or unfaithful when it comes to flirting with counterfeit gods. And the worship of God is something that we ought to hold uh, very seriously. These visions are calling us to decide 
who will you worship, right? Whose side will you stand on? Uh, God's side or the devil's side? Whose invitation are you going to respond to? The one that comes from Jesus who invites us to intimate fellowship with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or the invitation from the prostitute who promises the fleeting pleasures of the world. You know, if we were in person, you know what the perfect conclusion to this message would be? Uh, it would be to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, right? Uh, that would be a great outward demonstration of our inward commitment to respond to Jesus and to eat with him. Uh, because, you know, the Lord's Supper, it is a meal and it is pointing to this ultimate meal. And so I guess for now, the best we can do is imagine it. You know, uh, the way we used to do it, we used to have people line up and come to the table. And that was a way to communicate that Jesus is offering you an invitation, but you have to come and receive it, right? So uh, even though it may not be convenient, uh, we had you like physically get up, line up and come to the table to answer that invitation to receive the elements, to receive the broken body of Christ and his shed blood through the uh, through the bread and the, the wine, or in our case, the grape juice. So I want you to imagine now, imagine lining up, imagine receiving the elements into your hands, going back to your seat, and now consider what this body and blood represent to you as you consider the gospel. Then imagine receiving it and eating this bread and drinking this cup and receiving more of Jesus by way of the Holy Spirit and thinking about the meal that is to come in the marriage supper of the Lamb. And respond to, respond to God in that way, in your hearts. Make a choice that you want to receive his invitation, that you want to be with him, that you want to dine with him, that your worship is devoted to him. You see, without communion with Jesus, our hearts are, are going to be prone to wander. And when we commune with Jesus, we are reminded that we are the uh, betrothed. Uh, we are reminded how our bridegroom loves us to the point of dying upon a cross for us. And our hearts become touched. Our hearts get reoriented towards worship because we are so overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the love that he has shown us in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. So we don't have that conclusion today. Uh, if we were in person, the best you can do is just imagine it. But if we were in person, that would be such a great ending uh, to this message. And I do hope we can come together and partake, partake in the Lord's Supper again soon. It's been a year since we've been able to. Um, but maybe even more than that, I, I, I hope Jesus returns <laughs> soon. And uh, I know deep in our hearts, some people are like, eh, I, I, there's a couple things I want to do first before Jesus returns. But um I think the right perspective is, you know, come Lord Jesus, come, right? I hope he returns soon. I hope he vanquishes evil soon. Uh, I hope we can experience this great heavenly feast when Satan is defeated once and for all. I hope we can experience this great meal soon. And uh, hold that in your heart. Hold that in your perspective. Uh, because I think that is the perspective Revelation calls us to have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great marriage supper that we look forward to. And yeah, I don't know how many of us have um, 
really looked forward to uh, a great party or a great feast or a great meal. Um, or, but um, we know that the, the meal that we look forward to in the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, is infinitely greater uh, than anything that we have looked forward to here on earth. Um, and so God, would you, would you put that in our hearts? Um, you know, as, as we, <clears throat> uh, I guess as we're exposed to maybe more and more evil and, you know, as it seems like there's uh, more brokenness and more violence and more hatred and more turmoil and more division, um, uh, we, we do pray, God, that our hope uh, would be rooted in what this meal represents and that you would give us more of Jesus, um, that as we imagine receiving the blood and the body of Christ, that uh, by way of your Holy Spirit, it is as if um, you're filling us with more of Christ. And uh, I pray, God, that that would impact and transform our hearts and reorient our hearts uh, to worship you, the one who sits upon the throne. Uh, we want to be a people of worship. We want to be a people who are faithful, who resist idolatry, who resist compromise. Um, we want to be a people who uh, see you for who you are and lift up our hallelujahs to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.